You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. I am Oliver Tonby, Chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Asia podcast. I am your host, Patty Wang, Engagement Manager at McKinsey & Company. Today, we will be talking about the trade and network flows in Asia, how global flows are shifting towards Asia, and what companies and governments can do to win a world led by Asia. To discuss the newly released report as part of the ongoing Future of Asia series, Asian networks and flows are redefining the next phase of globalization. I also have with me today Zhong Mingsong, MGI Senior Fellow, Shanghai, and Jonathan Wurzel, Director at McKinsey Global Institute. Zhong Ming and Jonathan, thanks for being with us here today. It's great to be here. Thank you. Our pleasure. So let's get started. What is the background of this piece of research? What prompted MGI to look into the future of Asia? Zhong Ming? So MGI has been studying the topic of globalization over the past decade. We have been publishing research on digital globalization, value chain in transition in China and the world. And this research is built on our earlier um, research. And this topic is particularly relevant now, given the global uncertainties, right? So there's a rising tension around the geopolitical tension around the world. And then the Western economy is slowing down. If you look at the economy in Europe, you know, the ECB just announced negative interest rate. German economy contracted in the second quarter. If you look at the U.S. economy, you know, they've been expanding over the past 10 years, right? But then the inverted yield curve is suggesting, you know, some signals of warning, right? So therefore, you know, are there, you know, any, you know, bright news in, in the world? And we wanted to study the, uh, the rise of Asia in a systematic um, way. I think that's great. Uh, and we have, um, the one reason we did it now essentially was that there was now an Asia to be studied in the sense that before we always had a China piece or a Southeast Asia piece or a Japan piece. But now we've sort of, we realized that there was a moment here. We, we, we thought there was a moment that we could look at the whole picture and we could put it all together and try to connect the dots in a way which we hadn't before. And so that was the, I think, the driving factor for why we look at Asia as opposed to all of its component parts. Yep. And I think you bring up a really interesting point at looking at the whole picture of things. So in this report, what um, I've noticed is that we look at eight different dimensions. We cover things from traditionally like the trade, we talk about people and flows of people, but we also bring in different parts such as culture. Um, and there are 16 different types of flows that you talk about within um, this whole system. Why are we looking at it on the multiple dimensions? So because we wanted to uh, take a systematic view on the rise of Asia, and then, you know, traditionally, as you mentioned, we looked at those four or five uh, dimensions, right? But then, you know, Asia's rise is more structural and systematic, so we wanted to extend the scope um, of those analyses, right? And then, you know, there are two interesting observations out of this analysis, right? So the first observation is that uh, the assessment shows that Asia matters, right? So Asia has been rising across almost all the dimensions that uh, we studied, right? So for example, you know, Asia accounts for about one third of global trade, 40% uh, of box office revenue, you know, 50% of international student flows, 60% of container traffic, 65% um, of 
patent flows and 70% of the other waste flows, right? So Asia is big and is becoming bigger and Asia will continue to matter. So that's the first observation. Second observation is that Asia is becoming even more Asian, right? So a lot of these flows are happening on an intra-regional basis. You know, 60% of the, uh, the goods flow, FDI flow, and 70% of the startup funding, you know, 74% of the other airline travelers flow are happening on an intra-regional basis, right? So the, uh, we believe that the Asian century has already arrived, right? It's not just based op- upon a macroeconomic indicator, but across all these dimensions, Asia is rising and it is becoming more Asian. Yeah, and uh, as to why we were looking at all of these different types of dimensions of flows, it's simply that we wanted to understand correlations and see whether, in fact, you know, that is it one-off? Is it just about trade or is it all just about money? Or is there something that connects uh, trade and money and people and culture and uh, and, and, and the environment? And uh, you know, what was the pattern, if you will, of uh, of the region? And so, yeah, uh, that was that was an interesting exploration. And if we think about this region, it is very big and it's very diverse. And from your research, we look at there is an important insight or the concept of four Asias that you mentioned in your report. How would you go about breaking down, decoding these four Asias? Well, I mean, we looked at uh, three real variables. One is the level of economic development. Uh, a second is the uh, the, con- the connectivity of the uh, of the region itself, and the third is the growth potential uh, for the region. So, whether it's economic or population, and sort of by those definitions, and sort of if you do a statistical crunch and you take all the countries and and look at what their characters, it comes out pretty clearly that there are these four groupings and that are you know quite distinct and. Uh, have a unique strength in some way, and that, uh, and in other ways, less uh, less so. So that's the that I mean, that was actually I would say a fairly objective and, if you will, you know, statistical view of this geographic area that we call Asia, and that that's how we got to the four Asias. And maybe uh, Jungman, you might elaborate on on the four Asias. Yeah, absolutely. So we had lots of internal debates on Asia, right? So what is Asia? Right? So there are lots of countries in Asia, right? And maybe, you know, it's the concept, you know, invented by the West, right? So for their own convenience, right? So we studied up over 60 countries. And then, you know, if you look at, you know, the, the profiles of these countries, right? So, you know, there is a 7x uh, GDP per capita gap between Nepal and Singapore, right? So there's a wide range of different spectrums, right? And people in Asia speak, you know, more than 2,000 different languages, right? So therefore, you know, how to think about Asia was a was, was one of the fundamental research questions. And then as Jonathan mentioned, you know, we took the economic lens to, to define at least four different Asia, right? So, for example, you know, the, the one dimension is scale, right? So how big, you know, some of those, you know, countries or entities will be. And then that sets China apart, right? So it's already the largest economy in the world in terms of PPP terms and second largest in terms of real uh, GDP terms. So so China is one type of Asia. Um, Another type of Asia is called uh, advanced Asia, right? So if you look at the degree of economic development, right? Per capita GDP, urbanization, and their investment into R&D, you know, know, this advanced Asia stands out, right? So they are, you know, way ahead of, you know, other Asian countries. So that's the the second uh, group of Asia. The third type of uh, Asia is called uh, emerging Asia. Jonathan mentioned the uh, the, the interaction model and, and connectivity. So if you look at 
how the countries interact with the rest of Asia. You know, there's very, you know, interesting difference, right? Especially the countries in Southeast Asia, you know, they are heavily integrated with the rest of Asia, right? So 80% of their trade flow, capital flow, people flows are on the basis of uh, uh, intra-regional flows, right? So, so we call this group of countries as the frontier Asia. And then the last Asia, the fourth Asia, we called frontier Asia and India, right? And the way they interact with the rest of the region is relatively loose. About 30% of their trade flow, capital flow, people flows are are inter-regional basis. So so this is how we define, you know, four different Asia. And there's also another interesting observation, which is that these four Asias are quite complementary, right? So... Jonathan talked about growth, right? So uh, if you look at the simulated growth for advanced Asia until 2040, you know, maybe it will be around 1% to 2%, right? So these economies will need to look for, you know, new growth engines. And, you know, they can find this growth engine in other, three other Asia, you know, China, emerging Asia, and advanced Asia. You know, they are likely to grow somewhere around 4 to 6%, right? So that's, you know, one, you know, complementary characteristics. Another complementary characteristic is about, uh, for example, labor force, right? So China and advanced Asia, you know, they are rapidly aging, right? So their working age population is declining. On the other hand, frontier Asia and emerging Asia, you know, they are still enjoying the large amount of, you know, demographic dividend, right? So they, they are still urbanizing and working age population is still expanding, right? And if you look at the dimension of innovation, right? So again, advanced Asia and China, you know, they have huge incumbent base and unicorn base and patent base, right? Knowledge base, right? Whereas in the um, emerging Asia and frontier Asia, you know, they lack those foundation. But then if you look at the pace of the growth, right? The startup activities, entrepreneurial activities, it is extremely active. Therefore, there is a great opportunity for advanced Asia and China to deploy, you know, their capital and know-how and, and knowledge in the, uh, the other parts of the Asia. So, you know, there's you know, quite interesting, you know, complementary characteristics across this for Asia. So what are some of the implications from a complementary Asia? We see a rise during the context of today's trade wars, during the political context, or even the geopolitical issues within the region itself. What does a more complementary Asia mean for today and maybe as well as if we look towards the future? Well, I think it means a more resilient Asia, sort of an Asia that can bounce back from crises, uh, whether they're coming from outside the region or inside. So because of the complementarity that, you know, the some places have technology, other places bring labor, other places bring capital or market development, that there is a there's a solution for every problem. And so that means the region essentially becomes more capable of addressing things that might be in the previous years, uh, critical failures. So whether it's the absence of capital, for example, if we think back 20 years to the, the, the tigers and all of that, that, that had essentially meant that Koreans and, and uh, Thais had to rely on Washington, D.C. to bail it out. And um, that's probably not going to be needed going forward, that uh, those resources will be found within the region. And the current technology uh, you know, conflicts are simply another aspect of saying, well, if the technology is not going to come from outside the region, this will create a incentive to invest more in the region. And there are economies and companies that can do so. So that's, I think, the implication is that 
resiliency and the ability to for Asia to develop its own solutions to its own problems will be a benefit to to the region and I believe to the world. Got it. So if you're thinking about this report, you mentioned all of the flows and the、um, different connections between these four different Asias. Can you help us bring this all to life when we think about these three networks you mentioned? In the report, you talk about a industrialization network, then you talk about an innovation network, and then a culture and mobility network. What do you mean by what? What are these networks and the connections and corridors that are connecting the different countries and the four Asias together? Yeah, so the complementary characteristics of four Asias are generating very interesting、uh, networks and corridors across Asia. And let's start with the、uh, the industrialization. And we see two interesting observations. The first observation is that you know as China shifts away from labor-intensive tradable categories, and you know, other Asian countries are stepping in and picking up. Right. So if you look at the China's share of、uh, emerging economies export in terms of labor-intensive、uh, tradables. It declined by three percentage point over the past, you know, three years, and then you know almost all the debt space、um, created by China are picked up by other Asian economies such as Vietnam, Cambodia, and and India, right? So we see this trend of the supply chain shift from China to other parts of Asia, right? So that's the first observation. Another observation is the uh, that uh, you know there is emerging corridor between advanced Asia and emerging Asia or frontier Asia, and the、uh, the corridor between Korea and Vietnam is an interesting example, right? So Korean players are investing substantially in Vietnam, and about eighty percent of、uh, Vietnamese electronics FDI、right, is actually coming from Korean companies, and Samsung and LG are you know very big players there, and. That is making you know Vietnam a export powerhouse, right? In terms of this technology value chain, you know about thirty-five percent of Vietnam's exports are actually electronics. Maybe let's talk a little bit about innovation network. So in the report, Jonathan, you mentioned something about the idea of multi-local innovation. What is this idea of multi-local innovation? This network that is forming. Well, we see a first of all, there is an Asian innovation network, and it's largely financial. So then we see the similar investors, whether it's India, or Indonesia, and they're people who with、uh, with capital from the region, whether in China, Japan, Korea, and then of course also from from India and Indonesia. So, but it's a there's there there's that financial fabric that integrates technology investment,、uh, startup capital. But what they're investing in is distinctly local.、Um, whether we're talking about payments or mobility or healthcare, I mean, these are sectors where, first of all, the local regulator is involved. Secondly, the local customer and tastes and the channel and the and the、uh, habits that they have are quite unique to their context. And thirdly, the the, the entrepreneurship is local. That, that we're talking about Indians and Indonesians and Chinese, and they may have all gone to a school or similar schools in their in or outside the region, but they are ultimately people who are very you know, local in their orientation and their desire to serve their community and their network and and so forth. So that means we see you know in this particularly the internet space, but 
you know, in, in all uh, other aspects of ICT, a, up, you know, emergence of entrepreneurship at the local level supported by a regional network of, uh, of funding. And, and, uh, and for, to that, to some extent, sort of that dialogue between the region and the local uh, in startup network is kind of an ongoing thing. So we, uh, and, you know, over time there is consolidation. Clearly we've seen that, that some companies are going out and acquiring other local companies. But interestingly, when they do acquire local companies, they don't integrate them. They let them run by themselves most of the time and they provide, try to enable them if they want to grow faster, but they don't try to create one model for all of Asia. I think that's a distinctive characteristic of Asian uh, approaches to growth is that you know, we sort of respect the diversity of Asia and go with the grain, sort of support that diversity, enable that diversity, if anything, to increase, because then one can say one is doing a better job of respecting the customer's needs, and as opposed to trying to go for some lowest common denominator approach, which is not going to do as good a job. So Asian ecosystems are complex, uh, they're, they're diverse, and they're dynamic, and they're ultimately very local in their orientation, and, uh, and aspirations are really there to support that local economy, help that local economy grow. So I think the term multi-local is quite interesting, right? So innovation by nature is local, right? And then, you know, as Jonathan mentioned, if you look at the leading brands, right, across, you know, those uh, uh, innovation categories or sectors, you know, they are local brands, right, managed by local entrepreneurs, right? So if you look at the mobility space, you know, there's Didi in China, Tada in Korea, right? Ola in India, Grab in Singapore, right? Gojek in Indonesia, for example, right? And you'll see the same, you know, local brands in e-commerce and payment, healthcare, and so on and so on, right? So, you know, that's the local part, right? But then if you look at the inspiration, right, or capital, right, or business models, you know, behind this local innovation is actually, you know, multi, right? Um, and, and also there's, you know, lots of uh, intra-regional uh, uh, funding and uh, flows of ideas, right, to, to enable um, this business model, right? So, for example, if you look at, you know, big tech companies in China, like Alibaba and Tencent, or, you know, SoftBank or, or in, in Japan, right? Or, or even some incumbent companies like Toyota, right? Or Hyundai or other investors in Korea, like Mirror Asset, right? So they are, they are big investors in, in Asia, right? So we see, on the one hand, this local phenomenon of innovation in, enabled by, you know, regional, you know, ideas and, and capital. So that's why we, we framed it as a, as a multi-local innovation. And, and, and if you look at uh, startup funding in, 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 in Asia, right, so about you know, 70% is happening on the inter-regional basis. That's very interesting. So if we think about the different kind of pockets of innovation that's happening all across Asia, what can different cities, or if we take this onto a very a city level, what are things that a government or a city can do to increase encourage or foster further innovation to attract the talent or attract the funding? Every uh, ecosystem or every, I mean, every urban environment has its own uh, unique characteristic. And the first thing they can do, of course, is to develop local talent. And if you will, to hopefully not only develop but retain it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so there are many clusters where you have great universities and then everybody goes somewhere else. Right. Uh, so figuring out how to translate all of that investment in education into employment and to uh, economic development is is uh, the uh 
you know, the first job, I would say. Um, and th with that comes then a, a business-friendly investor environment, which is everything from regulatory certainty uh, to uh, efficiency of infrastructure and the development of uh, uh, logistics around that to uh, the uh, access to marketplace. And so the negotiation of uh, trade agreements if you're a city-state, but uh, simply the uh, investment in exhibition centers or other sort of infrastructure to support that type of market development. I think those are all things that any city or local provincial or regional government can do. And then finally, it's about, okay, now you've invested in education, you have a talent base, you're just supporting your local businesses to kind of grow and create and retain that, then what else can you bring in? And uh, there, it's uh, a lot about this global war for talent, of course, and sort of what are we, what are kind of the mechanisms that you can use to attract people who are um, uh, mo mobile. They can mm -hmm. go anywhere. And uh, so what are the things that they are interested in? And it's, you know, it's everything from the freedom to do scientific in inquiry and to pursue the best in class uh, you know, research uh, with colleagues who are similarly like-minded to uh, raising a chance to raise your family in a, in a nice place with a, with a decent set of infrastructure and uh, livability. Um, scientists are people too. So that those are all factors that I think we see and uh, regions and, and, and companies for that matter trying to engage, invest in and to support their local innovation uh, ecosystem. Um, and we'll, we'll see more and more. So people sometimes ask us a question of, you know, where is the next Silicon Valley or something yep. like that? And uh, the answer is, well, I mean, all over the place. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. we, we won't see one, we'll see 50. Mm -hmm. And uh, that reflects the depth and the uh, pace of uh, innovative the capacity development. Simply put, innovation is something that is actually quite natural for people to do. And uh, when, But the reason it doesn't necessarily materialize is usually a factor of critical mass, that there's just not enough resource in a place, or there's an actively negative factor, something that's blocking it from happening. And what we have in Asia now is, first of all, critical mass. We have tremendous growth in the education and the talent and the money uh, associated. And secondly, an attitude on the part of society, business, government, uh, the individual of very much engaging in innovation, saying innovation is the way forward for Asia. So it's all very positive in that sense. So Jonathan talked about the war for talent, right? So in addition to all those hard factors, you know, soft factors or soft power of the cities will matter as well, right? In order to win in this war for talent, right? So, for example, you know, cities will need to have a brand, right? And then also cities will need to offer livable environment, right? So, like, you know, good hospitals, right? Or, you know, good schools for their kids, right? Or, you know, good air quality, right? So that this globally mobile talent can come to your city and then, you know, do, you know, long-term research or... Uh, drive lots of interesting uh, entrepreneurial activities. And also Jonathan talked about this, you know, 50, uh, you know, the Silicon Valleys in Asia. And in, the, in our research, we highlighted, you know, those, you know, top 50 cities with fastly growing uh, innovation activities. And then, 
you know, what was interesting was that, you know, there are, you know, relatively unknown cities as well, right? So if you think about China, you know, China as a country is a big innovation powerhouse. And then you think about, you know, Beijing or Shanghai or Shenzhen, right, as, as an as a innovation cluster. But then what about Wuhan, right? So there's also, you know, lots of investment in, you know, um, the innovation activities and, and research and so on. Right? There are more than 350, you know, institutes there doing, you know, uh, interesting research, right? And then when we think about India, right, so people talk about Bangalore, right? But then how about, you know, Hyderabad, right? So that's also, you know, another IT uh, and software hub rising in India, right? And if you think about uh, Southeast Asia, right? So then, you know, how about Jakarta, right? How about, you know, Yangon, right? So those, you know, relatively unknown cities has a potential to become an interesting innovation hub, right, in the future. And they can be a, a, a destination for future investment uh, for companies. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. That's very interesting that we're talking about the flow of people as well as talent is a big component, which brings us to our next network, which is looking at culture and mobility. So we know that China and India are both huge exporters of people, whether it's through the tourists that are traveling all across Europe, all across Southeast Asia. And in your research, you highlighted the growth of the corridor between China and Thailand, for example, of growing 29%. How does this change Asia's position in being a cultural influencer to the world? So broadly, right, so Asia used to be a recipient of Western culture, right? So I grew up in Korea, right? So I watched lots of Hollywood movies. I listened to, you know, British pop or the American pop, right? So, you know, Sylvester Stallone was my hero when I was still young, right? And then as Asia grows its own scale, now, you know, Asia has capacity to generate its own global blockbusters, right? And Korea is an interesting case point. I don't know if you heard about a, a boy band called BTS, right, or Psy, right? So they are becoming the next Michael Jackson or, or Beatles. And, and they were able to rise because, you know, there were lots of fan base and subscribers in Asia as well, right? So, and if you look at the TV contents, right, so Korean dramas are becoming very popular. You know, Descendant of the Sun was a, a very, you know, interesting hit, right? So both in China as well as other parts of the world, right? So, but then it's not just Korea, right? So, you know, Bollywood in India produce about, you know, 1,800 movies per year. Yoga is a global phenomenon. You know, Japanese anime is a, actually a, a global phenomenon too, right? So, you know, Asia is going to become a, a gradually a center of the global culture as well. So that's, you know, one uh, interesting observation. You know, another observation is the, the people flow, you know, as you, as you mentioned, right? So there are uh, 150 million trips, outbound trips made by, you know, Chinese tourists. And then they are redefining the standard of the travel and then also retail. So, for example, you know, if you look at, if you go to a, a you know, good, you know, high-end restaurant, you know, they used to ask, 
you know, whether you want a, a stick water or uh, sparkling water, you know, these days, you know, they start asking whether you want hot water as well, right? If you look at, you know, some, if you go to some uh, hotels, you know, they need to have kettles, right? Because Chinese travelers like to drink teas, right? So if you go to uh, duty-free shopping, you know, you can use Alipay and WeChat uh, to get, you know, tax refund, right? So, um, so the rise, uh, the, the rapidly growing people flow in Asia and particularly out of China are, are redefining the other cultural standards in, in Asia and the world. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, we're just starting that. One of the things that is still to be developed, for example, is uh, inbound tourism into China, that uh, China is a great sender of people abroad, but has not yet done so much in terms of creating opportunities for people to understand the real China. So that's going to be a big opportunity for Asia in the future. Uh, similarly, for students, uh, China is probably the single largest exporter of students on the planet, but doesn't have as much coming in. And as the Asia matures, and we should start to see people that, that uh, going to China for, for education in much greater numbers than they have in the past. So this, this is part and parcel of the broader sort of development of the economies of the region, sort of as the service sector uh, grows and as the economy grows, so too does the services sector. And, and big part of that will be tourism, education, and uh, recreation, culture, those type of networks. Yeah, and if we, th if we think about tourism, as Asia develops more tourism and inbound tourism, obviously one of the risks that we have heard of is also over-tourism and actually being able to grow this sector in a sustainable way where you're not overcrowding or you're not deteriorating the environment and its historical sites. So what are some of the kind of risks of this growing and flourishing region? What are some of the things that governments as well as corporations need to consider as the as this as risks well, i think growth shouldn't be done just for growth's sake i mean mm -hmm. just like urbanization is not done for urbanization's sake you know, the point is to raise the standard of living and to create a better quality for all the people of asia so going too fast thinking without thinking about the consequences of growth can lead to some problems some externalities as the economists would say most obvious example was, of course, pollution. Sort of uh, that you know, we had twelve or the most twenty most polluted cities in the world in in Asia, and so that's a consequence of growth. It didn't happen magically. It happened because we decided to grow, and but growing that way is 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 has a big consequence. And I think that's the lesson, or that's the implication that we need to make sure that we undo learn the lessons of uh, what's happened before. Uh, I think another aspect of a risk or a consequence is inequality. So Asia is the most unequal continent or region in the planet. And that's all fine as long as that people, everybody at the, all levels feels like there's the progress can be made. That they, even though that they start where they start, that trajectory is positive. But if that belief of that expectation for whatever reason tends to, it weakens and people feel that there is not as much in it for them anymore, then the dialogue becomes much more conflicted. And we can see, you know, uh, con you know strikes and we can see labor shortages leading to very confrontational behavior in, in local marketplaces. And uh, you know, I think that is a consequence, again, of rapid growth. A rapid growth has a tendency to lead to greater levels of inequality. So we need to think about what can we do 
um, to make sure that this growth supports the development of not just the richest and not just the most uh, aggressive, but uh, the all members of society. Uh, those are some of the risks that um, I emphasize that it's a lot easier to solve these kinds of problems in a growth environment than one where things are not so good. And so that's what Asia has really going for it today, that this is a growth environment. So we do have the resources. It's a lot more about how we choose to use them than it is our capacity to, uh, to make things better. Yeah. And on the tourism example, right, so, you know, because it is a growth environment, you know, government can also afford to take some steps, right? So, for example, you know, control the people flow, right? So that's what Philippines did, right? So in order to, you know, protect, you know, certain part of the very popular tourist destination. And then also at the same time, you know, government as well as companies, you know, they can diversify the, the destinations as well, right? So if you go to Japan, you don't always need to go to, you know, these big cities like Tokyo or Osaka, right? You can go to second or third tier cities in those countries. And then, you know, that's what the local government and then, you know, business people can also pay attention to, right? So think about interesting stories and themes out of those, you know, relatively unknown cities. And then, you know, how can you make more popular, right? Because we believe that, you know, the, the middle class in Asia will continue to rise and then there will be continuous growth and demand on, on those tourism and services. And as this middle class rises, if we think about the picture of Asia that you've painted, it's very positive. It is very exciting. So how does somebody who is looking onto this region that might not be here today be part of Asia? What are the steps that they need to do to capture and leverage this opportunity? Well, I mean, we sort of highlight you know, four things roughly. And, and, and the first is to be relevant. We used to say for China, but it's very true. Asia, Asia is a full body experience. I mean, we can sit in a room in New York and talk about Asia all we want, but we're not going to, if we're not actually part of the conversation, we're not, we're not relevant. And so the, the step one is uh, be in Asia. And so the move people, the move management, move critical functions. And think of Asia as, as a second home market if you're not from the region essentially you should be. So that's the first thing. The second is think about and the rethinking about the operating models. Um, a lot of people have slightly outdated you know, perspectives on Asia, largely because that's how they grew up. They saw Asia as something that was a outgrowth, if you will, of Western or, or OECD economies. And it is now becoming its own thing. And so that engaging with Asia means engaging it with on, it own, on its own terms. So it's not about countries, for example, it's about clusters. And within any given country, there are multiple clusters. And one's familiarity with those clusters and the ability to engage in ways which you probably wouldn't do in a more developed context is a differentiator for companies that get Asia and are effective in Asia and ones that aren't. Distribution is a classic example. It works very differently in most Asian clusters than it does in a uh, non-Asian context, let alone capital markets and financing. The third aspect of it is that Asia is, because it's a high growth region, is also a highly volatile region. Growth and volatility come together. So the ability to invest and to think that future-proof the, uh, the corporation against what you can see coming down the line, whether it's a financial crisis or an environmental crisis or a skills gap, these things are to some extent at least understandable, if not foreseeable. 
And so companies that are effective in Asia are ones which are not distracted by the headline of the month or the day saying, well, here's a, here's a crisis. And so, well, in a high growth environment, there is always a crisis. That's the nature of it. So being prepared for that, having the backup plans, having the capacity to see through the noise, that's a third factor. And then finally, that Asia is, again, just too big for one company to impose one model. And that implies a capacity for partnerships and alliances, which you, again, might not need, particularly if you are coming from a smaller country, which is more homogeneous, but in Asia is, is necessary. So the knowing how to structure an alliance, uh, how to manage it as if you own it because you do own it. Um, importantly, how to restructure an alliance, how to get out of things that aren't working and to expand things that are. And I think those are all sort of skills and capabilities which are needed in an Asian context more so than in others. So those, those, those four aspects. In terms of Jonathan's first aspect, right? So especially for, you know, multinational companies, right? So you need to be Asia relevant, right? And then you need to join the flow, right? So if you believe in the rapid increase of people flows, right? So you can capitalize on those trends, right? So for example, you know, Lufthansa increased their flights to Asia, right? And that, that was one of the reasons, you know, they grew faster, right? Compared to their peers, right? Uh, Netflix saw the opportunity of the, the increasing demand of cultural contents, right? So, you know, they were also investing big in Asia as well, you know, not only expanding their subscription base, but then, you know, they are also supporting the, uh, the original contents production out of Asia, right? In Korea and in Indonesia in particular, right? So, you know, so as a multinational company, you know, you can be part of the flow, right? And enjoy the, uh, the wave of the growth, right? And then, you know, another um, opportunity is to think about how they can continue to offer, you know, what Asia needs, right? Because in certain type of flows, Asia is still dependent on the global flows and education is a great example, right? And then the UK, you know, universities and government, you know, they simplified the, the visa process for Chinese students and also, you know, offer a you know, post-work visa and, and they become a popular destination for Chinese uh, students, right? So, you know, that's how you can think about, uh, in order to become Asia relevant. So we talked a lot about MNCs or Western firms. What about the firms that are already in Asia or are Asian? Well, I think similar applies in the sense that they, well, first of all, Asian firms are young firms. So mm -hmm. the majority of Asia's growth is being captured by companies from Asia, but they're relatively new companies. And uh, I think so we're, when we talk about what's the challenge for Asian companies, a lot of it is about growth and the, the challenge of being an effective startup or growth platform. And uh, that's a, so there's that. But beyond that, I mean, I think everybody does have uh, a history and they all have a legacy. So the um, we would think that there are similar challenges. I mean, that uh, yes, they're Asia relevant, but they're only relevant to a part of Asia right now. So we have these four Asias, and so that uh, you know that it's not enough to say I'm I'm a Korean company or I'm a Chinese company. That's not necessarily capturing the opportunity of being in Asia. What you have to be is a Chinese company that is an Asian com also an Asian company that has the ability to work together with its uh, counterparts in. In, uh, in emerging Asia or frontier Asia as partners. So there's a, there's, a there's a relevance question for Asian companies as well. 
And then with that, I mean, Asian companies have one thing in common, which is uh, they're much higher level of uh, non-publicly listed governance. So it's their state governance and there's private fam family governance is much more prevalent, uh, which implies a much level, greater level of risk has to be borne by the shareholder. Uh, whether it's the, the family or the or the government. And so there's a challenge for Asian companies to make that risk transparent and then to take the appropriate you know actions to sustain its growth. And so that's another sort of specific to Asian companies or a tendency to sort of challenges. How do we build those that governance mechanism? So how do we create that transparency? How do we improve the quality of reporting? How do we uh, you know make sure that the dissenting voices are heard in the boardroom? I mean, all these things are part of being a more effective regional uh, organization. And there are some great examples of that. I mean, I think we start to see Asian corporations and business company, business entities developing those skills in a way which we didn't see before. And so they were very local in many cases, and they had operated similarly to, in, as they had in the past. And now companies that are making this transition to the new Asia are literally are, are changing themselves and changing themselves in really fundamental ways. And also Asian companies can also explore lots of intra-regional uh, opportunities. And this is to Jonathan's fourth point, right? partnership and, and alliance. Right? And then there are you know, leading you know, Asian companies already doing this. Right? So for example, you know, if, if you look at Alibaba, you know, they are working with Malaysian government to build a logistics hub in the digital freight zone in Malaysia, for example. Right? So WeChat is offering remittance services for Filipinos in Hong Kong. Right, um, capitalizing on this uh, people flow and, and capital flows. Right, Ping An um, is exploring a, a JV with Grab, for example, on the other healthcare um, and artificial intelligence solutions. Right, so DBS is entering India's credit card market. Right, so there are lots and lots of intra-regional opportunities uh, coming up in Asia, and then Asian companies can equally seek uh, those uh, growth opportunities. So Joming and Jonathan, I think today you've painted a picture that is very uplifting for us today. It's exciting. It is talking about Asia's scale as the largest region. It already is the largest region today and how it will continue to grow in the future. But you've also told us a story where it's very complex. There's not just one Asia, but there's four different Asias that are very dynamic, but they're actually complementary to each other that forms interesting networks, whether it be industrialization, innovation, or from a people and culture perspective. What are any last parting thoughts that you would have to leave with our podcast listeners today if you were to think about the next thing or to leave a final word? Well, I mean, I think we can... First of all, this is not the final word. We're going to have a, we'll have a few <laughs> yes. more things coming out on the future of Asia. So consumers, technology, corporations. We, I mean, think that there's a lot more to be said here. But, I mean, our, our initial findings are simply that, A, this is the biggest region. It's the, it's the most exciting region. And it's a region which is increasingly uh, its own thing. And so leaves the question that in, in a world where Asia is the center mm -hmm. and Asia becomes more Asian, what does that leave everybody else? Mm. Uh, and so that's the, I think, the, the takeaway question for most people. <laughs> yeah, and, and also um, the center of gravity has been shifting to Asia. The Asian century is already here. And so let's think about you know, how to thrive in the Asian century. Well, wonderful. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, 
visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you.